You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today we're going to be doing a book review, Healthcare Simulation Research, A Practical Guide, published by Springer and edited by some folks well-known to Simulcast, Deborah Nestel, Joshua Hui, Kevin Kunkler, Mark Sherbo, and Aaron Colhoun. Today I'm going to be joined by two of those editors. We think about why write a book like this, how should we read a book like this, and go into some of the highlights about where we are at in the fields of simulation research in 2020. You're listening to Simulcast. So we start this episode with an interview with Aaron Colhoun. Aaron is a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Louisville. That's in Kentucky, USA, for our international guests. Uh, and he's also an attending physician at the Just for Kids Critical Care Centre at Norton's Children's Hospital. Uh, his training has taken him through uh, quite a deal of United States geography, including Johns Hopkins, uh, Northwestern up in Chicago, and also Harvard uh, Medical School in Boston, which is where I met him, in fact, about, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago. It'd be about 15 years uh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, yes. So um, maybe, Aaron, you could just give us a little sense because this is quite a uh, an amazing book. You've got 48 chapters in here ranging across qualitative research, quantitative research, ethics, grants, how to collect data, how to, how to survive peer review, um, how to uh, approach research as a novice and indeed as an intermediate or more advanced practitioner. So it's quite the uh, effort that you and your co-editors and many authors have put in there. So why do it? Well, I think this has been a need that the simulation community has had for quite some time. Um, when I began my career in simulation, there really wasn't anything like this available uh, for people to use. And so the chairs of the research committee from SSH got together and really decided that the best thing we could do for the simulation community is put together the collective wisdom of the community thus far so that people who were coming into this from the get-go really could have the benefit of things that we did not um, as we began our careers in this area. And so this is the fruit of that labor. So as part of this book review, I also spoke to Deborah Nestel, the lead editor for Healthcare Simulation Research, a practical guide. Now, our simulcast listeners will remember Deborah Nestel from her many hats, but the ones relevant to her interview today is that she's the Professor of Simulation Education in Healthcare at Monash University here in Australia. She's also the editor-in-chief relatively new editor-in-chief of BMJ Still, that's Simulation and Technology Enhanced Learning. So I asked Deborah much the same question. Uh, why do we need a book like this? When I was co-chair of the research committee at the Society for Simulation in Healthcare, and probably on a weekly basis, there was a request from someone in the um, society's uh, membership seeking guidance about research. Also, um, just personally with my PhD students there, uh, I was feeling a need for some repository of really good stuff to help my PhD students uh, really develop their practice. And you know, as some of the tasks that I have um, then as editor-in-chief of um, advances in simulation, but um, functioning with roles functioning as an abstract reviewer uh, for 
for example, the IMSH meeting, but clearly other simulation-related meetings as well, uh, reviewing research proposals. There was just a need to have a resource. So you found yourself having very similar conversations with people, giving them advice, and you thought how nice it would be to codify some of this and uh, obviously had some peers who were having similar conversations. Um, Absolutely. So congratulations to you both for a marvellous book. But it is a big book and it must have been an enormous task. So, Aaron, maybe you can give us a little bit of a sense of what do you personally get out of doing uh, such a big job like this? Well, what I got actually was exposure to the breadth of simulation research and the breadth of simulation researchers. Something that I don't think people really appreciate when they come into this field is how simulation exists at... I would call it almost like a nexus of a number of different fields of inquiry. Um, a lot of the people that I sort of uh, work with, travel with, um, my, my, my personal community within simulation tend to be clinicians or tend to be physicians or nurses. And so we come from more of a biomedical paradigm. But simulation exists also at the hub of educational research, at uh, psychological research, at sociological research. And so what I learned going into this work was exactly how broad our field is and really the exact range of methods we had to choose from, which I thought I knew going in, but having seen how this book turned out, I learned a lot about things that I never even thought I would, uh, bits of knowledge I never even realized I was missing. Yeah. And that is, I think, uh, absolutely fascinating. And, and again, looking largely from the outside at that simulation research community, I'd have to agree with you. And I, and I think the breadth is even more, isn't it? People into computer modeling, uh, people from the human factors and engineering world. It, you're right, it's uh, a very broad church. And in fact, this was picked up on by Dave Garber, who wrote the foreword for this book. And he says, of course, you don't start at the beginning and read through it. You dip into it depending on what you're engaged in, what you're interested in, and where you feel like uh, you want to get a little sense of that breadth. So um, I guess this might be difficult to say, but tell us from your point of view, what's in the book? Uh, what sort of people contributed and how did you decide on the structure of it? Well, um, the structure really is based on partially on methodology, uh, partially on the history of the discipline, and also partially on the sort of structure of how a project moves from development through implementation into dissemination. So it really begins with an overview of simulation research as a whole, where it came from, where it could be going. It then looks at the very opening parts of a research study, the literature search, uh, figuring out how to synthesize and gather data from the uh, worldwide simulation community to find out exactly where a field is or a question is before proceeding further. Um, by far the biggest uh, divisions of the book are into the quantitative research, qualitative research, and mixed methods categories. And these really take a quite deep dive at the very different methods, approaches for each one. The thing I'd like to highlight for each of those sections is that some of the chapters really do have a novice in mind. If you've never um, maybe encountered qualitative research before, as I really had not been too involved in until several years ago, um, just reading the introductory chapter on the qualitative research section really gives you a good feel for what it means and what kind of questions you can investigate that way. And the same with the quantitative. But then as you go further into each section, it gets deeper and deeper until you're into the very specific techniques, both practical aspects of it and even more theoretical aspects. Uh, maybe some chapters I could highlight in those would be uh, Deborah Nestel's chapter on thematic analysis, um, Walter Epic's chapter, chapter on um, grounded theory. Uh, Mark Serbo wrote a great chapter in um, the quantitative section on what is a theory, what is a theoretical framework, and why do we need them to support our work? 
But then moving on from those sections, we get into a very practical area where it looks at how do you actually write up your findings? How do you disseminate your findings? How do you get money to pay for your study? What does a grant application look like? And for those that spend time peer reviewing other people's work, um, really, it's uh, there's a bit of a primer in there on how you actually do the peer review process, how you go about reviewing somebody else's work to make it the best that it can be. We end the book with very practical vignettes, uh, discussions about specific aspects of the process. Some individuals discuss their journey through the research process. Uh, one chapter that I contributed to was a dialogue between myself and a statistician trying to sort of unpack the sometimes difficult conversations that can happen between those two specialties in a way that would hopefully help people learn how to have those conversations in their own, uh, in their own domain. Um, as far as approaching the authors, we really uh, had a large community to draw from. Many of the authors had been involved in some form with reviewing for simulation healthcare, uh, one of our main journals, or uh, advances in simulation, um, BMJ, simulation technology and advanced learning, clinical simulation and nursing, the main journals in the field. Some were involved with the research committee per se. We drew heavily also from the uh, Inspire Pediatric Simulation uh, Research Network and assembled a group basically that what it came down to is these are the people that we thought could speak the best to each subject. And so we tried to make it as interprofessional as possible, as diverse as possible, to include as many voices as possible so that the book really had something in it for everyone. So uh, Dave Garber, as I said, said to dip into the book, I guess you've intimated that there is uh, sections for novices and others how do you anticipate people will approach what is pretty? Big well, my hope is that people won't exactly try to read it from front to back. I think there's some interesting things in the front matter that will get people's uh, feet wet, so to speak, in the realm of simulation research, just to hear where we came from and to hear where we're going. But really, this is meant to be a reference work primarily. Uh, if somebody is uh, engaging on a study, it's our hope that they would look. And uh, if they're thinking it's a quantitative study, they would look at the method section, get some hints as to how to better design um the actual structure of the study, how to choose good outcome measures. And so we're hoping it can serve as a reference work in that way. On the other hand, though, we're also hoping that people will look through this uh, table of contents and say, you know what, I've never heard about fill in the blank before. You know, what is thematic analysis? What is, um, you know, how do you do an interview? And then people will begin to look at those things and have their minds opened and begin to realize that the questions they thought they knew how to address best might have offshoots or other interesting aspects to them that a totally different method might be useful for, and that people from those different um, backgrounds that I talked about coming in, the biomedical, the uh, sociological, the psychological, the educational, might use this as a springboard to venture into a domain they've never really thought of looking in before and find that actually there's resources there they can use to answer questions they didn't even realize they had. So uh, Aaron's given us a nice overview of the book and he's indicated, as you just have, I think, there that this is a reference work, a place for people to start or indeed to dip into, even if they're well on the journey of being a researcher. Uh, I was wondering if you might like to pick out a highlight or two uh, for you. In part one, I absolutely love the chapter led by Jeffrey Chong and it's on starting your research project. It gives the um, even an experienced uh, researcher, frankly, um, to writing research questions in this iterative approach. Think about what the need is that you're seeking to address. Go to the literature, return to your uh, research question, go back to the literature and all in a um, this goal of trying to identify the uh, what Lorelei Lingard has made very popular in our world of um, finding the conversation that you want to join and also of asking um, if the research really matters 
um, to whom and why, um, so that we do meaning, really meaningful work. The other um, thing that Jeffrey Chung and his colleagues identified was the need to identify the theories. So it's first of all, it's going to literature just to see what's out there, but then it's um, going to the literature to identify the theoretical framework that will inform your study. And although this is... Um, it's a really hard thing to do and I don't think we've done it as well as we might have in the past. And there's a, um, a researcher called Biester who talks about um, theoretical connoisseurship and it really is that hard that you I think it's almost imperative and this is where the conversations with experienced researchers come in of trying to identify what theory will inform your work and it's hard to pick that up from just reading so um, have conversations and there's a lovely figure in that chapter that illustrates this, well, the iterative process, the going back and forth and it's actually relevant to any research paradigm that you choose to adopt. So that's one of my favourites. Well, I think that's very useful. And I think it's fascinating, of course, that you've chosen something that I think is one of the biggest hurdles for many, particularly clinician uh, educators who are dabbling now in the world of scholarship. And they get told something like, hey, that's a great thing you did. Why don't you write that up? So they end up with with the scholarship part of this being the add-on to some great, often, educational work they've done. But what you're saying is you need to think about the place of it and that's very hard for people then to go retrofitting what they're doing into a conversation, whereas what you're saying is this expertise means you have a sense of the conversation before you even start entering it. I think so, really helping to shape the work from the outset. And what you've described, Vic, is a beautiful illustration of, um, with my editor-in-chief hat on, what I often see in um, work submitted to the, um, the respective journals. Aaron, if we could turn our attention now to some tips for listeners. Uh, you're a font of wisdom. You've put this book together. You're a previous chair of the Society for Simulation in Healthcare Research Committee, now led by Sharon Murat Wadstaff. Uh, what would be your top tips for novice researchers? Uh, you asked a good question, and, and that's how would you engage with this as a novice? And the way I would approach that is think, well, how would I have wanted to engage with this when I entered? So, first of all, I'm hoping that the entire book conveys to the novice the sheer vibrancy and size of the field of simulation research and that there really are a large array of possible ways to answer specific questions. Uh, maybe the best way to approach this would be with an example. Um, one researcher came up to me uh, once and asked about what a study would look like to examine uh, teamwork skills in a very different environment. Uh, this environment was the MRI suite. And the researcher had a picture in their head of an intervention. And that intervention might well have worked, but what I quickly realized is that the theoretical frameworks behind that intervention, um, there may not actually be any theoretical knowledge as to how to best behave in an MRI suite. We might not have assessment tools that are uh, capable of measuring those constructs. Um, to MRI suites can be very difficult environments. You have a large magnet that can pull large pieces of metal across the room. There's typically walls and the medications are behind the walls. And so while normal teamwork skills might work in that environment, uh, they might not. And so there's a need for previous knowledge. There's a need to engage 
in a real questioning of the assumptions you have when you go into some of these things. And it's easy as a novice researcher to just see the problem you're trying to solve and not see the web of assumptions in which the problem um, is situated. And so what I would say is always step back and ask yourself, what do I really need to know to ask this question? What do I really need to know to answer the question of about whatever it is I'm proposing to study? Is there something that is actually undergirding this that may or may not actually exist that I might need to question or that I might need to dig into deeper, that I might need to do a study in deeper. My hope is with this book that regardless of what assumptions young researchers have to question, they'll find a method that will let them get at it. Um, And so in short, it's pretty much everything I wished I had known when I started, but didn't and had to find out the hard way because everything I'm talking about now is stuff that I had to largely learn by trial and error. Well, I would try to get engaged as deeply as you can with the various and assorted simulation research communities within um, the simulation so the simulation community as a whole. Uh, the research committee at SSH is a great place to start. Not only does it have a core committee, but there are numerous task forces that are engaged in really excellent work with shaping the abstracts and abstract reviews for the conference. One of the best ways to learn how to research is to read what other people have done and to engage uh, in trying to look critically on what other people have done, not for the purpose of criticism, but to try to really understand design and structure and outcomes. Um, I would also uh, say to find relationships with other parts of the uh, simulation community as well. The pediatric simulation community has a has a number of vibrant uh, research groups in as well that can provide connection there. So I would say find friends. Um, research is a team sport. Yeah, absolutely. So just to recap on that, find friends, find community, but also be aware that there's going to be some background to most of your research questions that's worth thinking about why before you get into the what. And I think that's particular risk taking your example for the biomedical background people, because we seem very keen to do an intervention, as you say, and to prove that it works instead of really understanding what we mean by works to begin with. That's exactly right. I, I think that um, my, as a physician, as a physician, my bias is to come up with a solution to a problem and try to jump in and just start addressing it and then figure a way to prove that it works. And that's a perfectly viable model for doing simulation research. The trouble is, is when we get into those other intersecting domains, there's other ways of looking at things. And what we think we know, we might not actually know. And so one of the reasons we structured this book this way is to hopefully help people to branch out and to ask those questions better and to have methods to approach them. All right. Well, let me uh, turn our attention now to experienced researchers. And again, partly from the book and partly for your own experience, I imagine that uh, those who've done a little bit of research and on their journey maybe have some other blind spots or other problems. What's your advice to them? Um, Well, that's a really good question. And I have a couple points that I think could be of value. The first thing I would say is that it's easy to think about simulation research as research about simulation, research about simulation as an intervention. And and a lot of it does go down that road. But there's a much broader field that can be looked at, and that simulation is an outcome measure. Uh, There was a study that uh, my colleagues and I did several years ago where we had developed an app to help uh, EMS providers communicate better in difficult family situations. And while the app itself was not simulation-based, we used simulated difficult interactions to study how the app functioned and measure communication skills. So simulation let us create an environment that we needed to study what we uh, thought was a very important question and a new intervention in a way that we couldn't have done in the real world. So I would say broaden your horizons. Think about ways this methodology can be used to answer other questions you might have. 
Uh, the second thing I would say is really something I've been kind of getting at the whole time is think beyond the boundaries of your specific subdomain and think about uh, ways to answer questions that you didn't even realize you had. Now, as people move in that direction, you'll often find that uh, questions build on each other and programs of research to start to develop. So take, for example, that uh, that uh, example of the the MRI scanner code team training process. Let's say that that individual uh, who was looking at that study looked back and realized that, you know, we don't have a good model of what crisis resource management looks like in an MRI environment, and there might be a need to explore that further. And if we don't know what the model looks like, we probably don't have a way to assess it. So right there, you've converted one study, which is a study on a certain intervention that you basically hope works because it kind of makes sense to you, into three studies. One of which is just looking at behavior in the MRI suite, doing an observational study or a qualitative study, trying to come up with a set or a model of the best teamwork and communication skills uh, really work in that very unique environment. And the second, uh, if once one creates that, is to create a way to assess those things. If you have those two things, then you can come up with an intervention that's based on previous knowledge. But if you think about that, what that's done is take one question and it's gone backwards uh, into the realm of the assumptions behind it. And you've developed a program of research from it. And so what I would say for experienced uh, individuals is to think about how the questions you have uh, can be developed and woven into a full program of research that carries you for your whole career. Yes, so that's really uh, useful, I think. So just to recap for our listeners, for those a little bit more down the journey of research, think about simulation also as a test bed, not just an, uh, the object of the uh, study, but also think about, given this diversity, exploring different ways of approaching problems and think about sort of programmatic approaches uh, to issues. So the last group I was keen to get your thoughts on, Aaron, in terms of advice is... Uh, for potential or current book editors, because I'm just looking again at the uh, introductory notes here. There's 78 contributors in this book, plus you had an uh, editor group that was a decent size. This must have been quite the exercise um, in working together. How did you uh, go and any tips for book editors? That's an excellent question. And I, and I will confess, this was the first book I ever edited. Uh, and so I was sort of just diving in, not entirely sure the depth that I was getting into, but as you alluded to, uh, the book editing is a big task. Um, there's 75 people, each with their own lives, their own uh, clinical domains, their own research domains, their own teaching that they have to do. And you're trying to coordinate getting information and chapters back and edited and synchronized with each other so that the language matches the language of the rest of the book, but at the same time has this distinctive flair of that, own, of that particular author. And above all, of course, is the uh, deadlines put forward by the uh, publication group that you absolutely have to meet. And so the first thing I would say is find a way to coordinate your activities, some centralized area. We use Dropbox. I would also say work to a spreadsheet. We had a very elaborate spreadsheet that Deborah created uh, where we started from, where we had a list of the authors, list of author emails, topics for the book. We would mark down conversations if each of us had had a correspondence that had something to do with when that chapter, a draft of that chapter, the final chapter would be done. We marked it in there. So all of us could go in the system and know exactly where the book stood at any given time and know what we could do to move it forward. So, Deborah, a provocative question for you. 
Do you think books are still relevant in this age when everyone's got a blog post or a podcast or a tweet? Uh, what's the place of them? You know, publishing is changing um, so very quickly and I am involved in, um, as you know, Vic, a publication of a, another book at the moment and one of the features of this new format of publishing is that individual chapters will be able to be updated by authors um, as and when they think it's net necessary. We don't have to wait for everybody in the book to make that contribution. So I think we're going to see quite different approaches to what a, a, a an edited book looks like, how they're managed and how they function. You're listening to Simulcast. Having spent some time corresponding with all those authors and really thinking conceptually about simulation research, uh, where do you see the field going over the next three to five years? It's an excellent question. And I can tell you right now that there are actually studies ongoing uh, from the SSH Research Committee that are uh, intended to try to come up with the next set of questions that will drive us forward for those next five years. So I won't steal the thunder of the people working on that per se. But what I will say is that I think that two areas we need to look at very closely are return on investment and VRAR. Um, as far as return on investment is concerned, I think everybody who's ever built or worked within a SIM program has felt the need to justify the expenditure being made to superiors, to the institution, to patient safety, um, you name it. And so more solid scholarship on exactly how one can calculate return on investment, more financial scholarship on how to do that, and in ways of just presenting that information, ways that really make the impact that we all know we have on the communities in which we work, uh, known to the people that are in essentially in charge of what to do next and how to build an organization. So ROI is a major area. Um, one of the things I was really impressed at the last two years at IMSH is the way that VR has really come into its own. Um, about five or six years ago, I thought, eh, yeah, this will work out. This is, this is coming. And then about a year ago, I went into the, um, the tech area, tried on a VR headset and activated a new program and realized that it's no longer coming. It is here. And we need to find out the best ways to use this, the best ways to integrate this with the mannequin simulation and the screen-based simulation we've been doing, the psychological differences in how learners perceive VR for from a full mannequin simulation, um, the kinds of things that it works well at. And so I really think that that is an area of major growth. I know it's an area that the society is uh, deeply invested and interested in, uh, exploring and expanding on more. And so I, I see that as an area that'd be really fruitful for grants for studies and for things of that nature. Also, again, I, I think that I would just again stress that simulation really can be used more and more as an outcome measure for non-simulation oriented questions. We have a resource that we can offer the uh, medical, the educational research community as a whole. Um, there's a number of studies I'm involved in now where simulation, again, is the outcome measure. It's not the actual intervention that we're doing. But the, the, the ability to standardize an environment, the ability to have assessment tools that have been really checked out clear, cleanly in simulation so we know how they perform, and then to use that to assess the outcome of other or different interventions that may have nothing to do um, with mannequins or with VR or anything like that, really expands the value of what our community can offer to the research world far beyond what we're currently doing. You're listening to Simulcast. Deborah Nestel, you're you know, up there as one of the doyens of this field of simulation research and uh, 
deeply in some areas, more than others, obviously. Uh, I'm interested in the same question we asked Aaron, which is uh, about the future of simulation research. And we've also just had the IMSH 2020 conference in San Diego, lots of research conversations going on there. Uh, can you give us the, as the Americans would say, 30,000 foot view of the field? Where do you think we're going and maybe where do you think we should go? Oh, yeah, big question. And I actually do like these sorts of questions because no one knows the answer right now. Um, what I'm thinking about is, and actually I'm harking back to some words that uh, Glenn Regeer wrote about um, medical education, and he wrote these words about a decade ago. But effectively, um, I um, see that our healthcare simulation research is going to increasingly focus on seeking to to understand the complexity of the environments in which we learn and work. Um, so moving away a little from the proving that it works to really understanding why it's working, how and when and for whom. So a little bit that um, realist approach, but much more about understanding complexity. Yes, and this complexity that you talk about, I understand will probably be well served if we look to the variety of fields that have been involved in simulation research and think about how they combine their skills. And I'm thinking about human factors, education research, anthropology now, sociology, psychology, uh, as well as the quantitative approaches that are also outlined in the book. So it sounds like a, a call for collaboration. I think that uh, we will be looking to um, consider alternate uh, methods and methodologies. And uh, returning to the book for a minute, there's a particularly interesting chapter written by uh, Peter Diekman and Sari Lalu that looks at visual methods and the ways that um, they may be used in healthcare simulation research. And if you think about it, at least in our healthcare simulation educational practice, visual approaches are so important. Um, but from a research perspective, we haven't quite, I think, got a handle on how we might do that. So going outside of our usual um, 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 tools for, for research and to other disciplines, we may well learn a great deal. So that's a terrific guidance, I think, from, from them. Yeah, excellent. Uh, certainly one of the good things about getting a book like this is you think you're finding something that you're interested in and then oh, there's something you hadn't even heard of that you come across in a subsequent chapter. And even things that you are quite familiar with, like perhaps individual interviews or focus groups, I think you'll find that the work that, um, for example, Walter Epic, Jerry Gormley and Pim Tunison for in-depth interviews and then Nancy McNaughton and Lou Clark with the focus group work, just alerting you to absolutely contemporary approaches to these methods and alerting, particularly considering clinicians as researchers, to the sorts of challenges that they might have um, when using these methods. Yes, and I think that harks back to Aaron's thoughts about how do we get our heads around the theory, the practical, and joining those research conversations we mentioned earlier. 
got to go back to the purpose of all of the research we do is not about the technology. It's about addressing a healthcare need and um, or an educational need. So we've got to keep that privileged um, in any of the the conversations we have about research. It's that who does this matter to and um, is it sufficiently important to do the research in and of itself? So thank you to you both. So I've been talking with Deborah Nestel and Aaron Colhoun, who are editors of the book Healthcare Simulation Research, a practical guide published by Springer. I'll put where you can get that as a link in our associated blog post, but also you can Google that if you want to get onto it really quickly after this show. So with that, I'll leave you Simulcast listeners for next time. Signing off for Simulcast, I'm Victoria Brazel. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.